0: about heaven, and we did that, we needed to look at uh, who God is, and human beings made in the image of God, and what we were made for, We pointed out already that that word image in the Bible always refers to a physical, visible, three-dimensional representation. We saw in Genesis chapter 2 that... Contra Plato, who would see the primacy of the soul and a pre-existence of souls then imprisoned within bodies, that in Genesis chapter 2 there was a primacy of the body, that God formed the man out of the dust of the ground and he breathed into him the breath of life and that the man became a living soul. As we looked at that more closely, we saw that Human beings are said in the Bible, in the earliest portions of it, to be souls, not to have souls. We've seen that God's goal and the hope of our redemption is not to escape the prison house of the body and for our souls to float off and live with God, but for God to redeem the whole fallen and uncompleted creation, beginning with the spiritual regeneration of his people, and the resurrection of the body, we looked at that last week, and then finally the regeneration and renewal of all of creation, of the new heavens and new earth. But the goal of redemption of human beings is the resurrection of the body. We looked at those ancient creeds that all affirm, I believe in the resurrection of the body, or I believe in the resurrection of the dead. Those words, the immortality of the soul, the platonic language, not language that we find in the Bible. The people of God are impoverished when they give up the great hope of the future resurrection of the dead to focus on a hope of heaven immediately after death. And yet, in the Bible, there is a hope of heaven immediately after death. Though not, I have become convinced, the hope of Plato... And the best thing that we could do would be to expunge Plato from our minds. And the hope that the Bible presents will not fit into Platonic or Aristotelian or Newtonian categories. But While it's important that we don't let a hope for present blessings rob us of the hope for the future, it's also important that the hope of a future resurrection should not rob us of the present hope of heaven now for those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Today I'd like to read to you from Paul's uh, letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, which at first might not seem like it has much to do with the issue that we're speaking about today. I hope... That by the end of our time today, you will see how it does. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, this is God's word. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you today for the precious promises of your word. All of which promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. We thank you for your great love and for your great mercy. For the great hope for which you have destined us. And the great truth and reality now. Father, we pray that you would help to give us just a glimpse of the sight of those things which we lay hold of by faith. Through Christ our Lord we pray today. Amen. (coughs) You read the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, you can't escape the idea that human beings are an irreducible complexity. Now that language uh, is used by some biologists in irreducible complexity to speak of organs that would be very difficult to explain how those organs could come to be by some really evolutionary process because uh, every part of them were interdependent on one another. And as we've been looking at the constitution of human beings, you see that human beings are this irreducible complexity. They're not this kind of platonic idea where you have uh, this, this lifeless body that's kind of like a glove and an animating soul that fits within it, but that can easily be separated from one another. And as we look at the scriptures and we read words like that, um, soul or spirit, and uh, oftentimes that word spirit, you know, that word can be translated as breath, and oftentimes should be translated that way, referring to the breath of life into which God breathed, or into Adam uh, that God breathed, that it's much better for us to look at that not as components of human beings, but as aspects of human beings. I think those words are best understood through the lens of the Apostle Paul's distinction between the inner and the outer man. Paul makes that distinction in Romans chapter 7 and 2 Corinthians 4 and Ephesians 3. The inner and outer man can be distinguished, but they can't really be separated from one another, just as you might think of the Uh, inner part of this building or the outer part of this building. We can distinguish them, but you really couldn't have an outer part of the building without there being an inner part of the building, and vice versa. And human beings, as living human beings, are an irreducible complexity. It's Important for us to remember that for us and for our salvation, the Word became flesh. The Son of God became incarnate. So central is that truth to the Bible's teaching on redemption that it would be inconceivable that there could be any redemption apart from it. But it's important that we understand what that means. It's not that... The Word, or the Lagos, or the Holy Spirit, came to indwell a human body. It's that the Son of God took to Himself an entire human nature, what we would call body and soul, inner and outer man. Our persons are so integrated, and our bodies are so integral, to who we are, that we're told things like this in the scriptures, for example in Psalm 146 in verse 4, when his spirit departs or breath departs, he returns to the earth. It doesn't say his body returns to the earth it says he returns to the earth that very day his thoughts perish. Or again in Psalm 30, the psalmist asks What profit is there in my blood if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your faithfulness? And it's significant to note that God said to Adam after his sin, not uh, Adam, dust your body is, and to dust your body will return, but he said, dust you are, and to dust you will return. The Gospel writers tell us that after the crucifixion of Jesus that they took him down. They wrapped him in cloths, and they laid him in the tomb. And when Mary came looking and couldn't find Jesus, the supposing the risen Christ to be the gardener, she said, where have you laid him? The book of Revelation, Jesus, as he reveals himself to John and declares who he is, he says, Behold, I was dead. He doesn't say, Behold, my body was dead. He says, Behold, I was dead. And now I am alive forevermore. In the Bible's teaching human beings are so integrated, so in- untangleable from the body, that logic may well us to conclude that death just ends it. It compelled the Sadducees to draw that conclusion. Or at least that death ends it until the resurrection. And there have been various splinter groups in the Christian church that have thought so. When we turn to the New Testament we find an unexpected reality. And that unexpected reality is summed up in two passages, in Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, and 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, For to me... To live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Now what Paul is talking about here is what Theologians call accurately, if somewhat clinically sounding, the intermediate state. And it's an accurate statement, the intermediate state, because it speaks of a state that is temporary and impermanent, because the goal of our redemption is resurrection. And what Paul speaks of here is unnatural and unexpected, given the Bible's teaching about the constitution of human beings. That we try to solve that uh, difficulty that arises from the biblical testimony by employing Plato, so that we can make it all kind of rationalistically fit for us. And when we do so, we end up with pictures like we uh, see in the movies, the old movies from the 1930s and 40s and some uh, modern movies of, of a lifeless body lying somewhere, and then this ghostly figure that looks just like the body, kind of climbing out of it and then floating up to the clouds somewhere. And then these shades and specters float in this gossamer fashion around heaven, with not much to do except to play harps, perhaps. The Bible presents a much more unsettling and a much more comforting picture. It's important, as we try to get that picture in mind, to understand that Jesus rose from the grave bodily. We looked at that last week. That That the Gospel writers strain to show us, that they want us to understand that Jesus rose from the dead, not in some spiritual or metaphorical fashion, but that He physically rose from the dead. I pointed out that you might disbelieve the testimony of the apostles and the gospel, but you can't misunderstand what they're telling us. That Jesus came, stood among them, and he said to them, as they thought they were frightened and said, they thought that they saw a spirit, he said, I'm not a spirit. He said, touch me and see. A spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see, that I have. It's important that we understand that Jesus rose bodily, but not really that he rose bodily, but that he ascended into heaven bodily. And I want you to stop and just think about that for a minute and let that sink in. After spending 40 days with Jesus on and off after his resurrection, they watched Jesus ascend into heaven. In Acts chapter 1, as they witnessed this happening, they're standing there kind of gawking at the sight. We're told that there was an angel that stood next to them who said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. and this Jesus who rose bodily who ascended bodily, is going to return bodily. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 21, uh, asks the question, who is the Redeemer of God's elect? And I love the answer that the Shorter Catechism gives to that question. It begins by saying the only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what that answers the question. We could stop there. There's the answer to the question. Who's the redeemer of God's elect? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Westminster divines thought it necessary to go on to tell us more. That we might that we might repeat more about that. And so the answer to that question that it gives is the only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ who being the eternal son of God became man and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever that is the Christology of the Christian church and has been from the very beginning when they when they finally worked all of those things out for people who were unclear about who Jesus Christ is. It's not that the incarnation was an event that happened sometime, but now it's over. And the Son of God has returned to some kind of pristine fashion that he was in before the Incarnation. He was and continues to be, to this day, God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. In the totality of his human nature, what we would call the soul and the body. Jesus rose physically and he ascended Physically. The natural, almost inescapable conclusion of that truth is that Jesus is some place. Let's think in for a minute. Jesus is some place. John chapter 14, before he went to the cross, Jesus said to his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. And so I'm going to make a proposition now that I, I cannot explain to you. I can't explain how. I can only tell you that why I say it, there seems to be a physicality about the intermediate state. There is a physicality about the intermediate state, I can't explain how, but I'll show you why I say so. The other passage I directed your attention to was 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And in that passage, Paul says this. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given to us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, by faith, not by sight, we are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please Him whether we are at home in the body or away from it. Now, as you look at this passage, there are a few things to notice. First of all, Uh, Paul says, we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed uh, or torn down. Tent is a poetic way, a metaphorical way, of speaking about the frame of our body. Speaking about death, we're told in Job 18.14, he is torn from the security of his tent and marched off to the king of terrors." You know, we're told in John's Gospel that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the word that uh, John chose to say "dwelt among us" is a Greek word that takes its roots from "tent" or "tabernacle" among us. So the pagan world believed that at death, what happened is that people would be unclothed; they would become naked souls; they would be free from the prison house of the body. And they would be naked souls. Paul says, Our great goal is not to be naked. He indicates something very different here. He says, We know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. And I want you to look at the contrast that Paul makes here. He talks about the tent in which we now live this body which is weak and then he talks about this permanent building. What's he talking about? Is he talking about us going to be as naked souls to heaven? No, he says that we have an eternal house in heaven that that's where the house is Not that it is heaven, it is in heaven. And so the comparison here is a a flimsy tent compared to the solidity of structure, to a solid structure rather. But the structure is in heaven, it's not heaven itself. And it's contrasted with the hope of the pagans of being a naked soul. You know, as I read this here, Uh, I would think that what he's talking about is the resurrection of the body. Except that Paul goes on to say, Therefore, we're always confident and know that as long as we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. He says we prefer rather to be away from the body or absent from the body and present with the Lord. Uh, In his book, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis presents heaven as being so solid that the people who first go there, the, the blades of grass hurt their feet until they take on the solidity of heaven. And it's a delightful thought, Lewis has got a wonderful imagination, but I think that That he gets that idea from some of the things that he's read in the scriptures. You know, it's a remarkable thing when you look at the resurrection accounts of Jesus. that They tell us uh, unambiguously that he was not a phantom, not a ghost, not a spirit. He has flesh and uh, bones. He can be touched. Disciples were worried that he was concerned, frightened, that he was a spirit. Why did they think that? You know, it's an odd thing, the resurrection of Jesus. It seems that in that resurrection that, that he's able to pass through solid objects. Did you ever notice that in the Gospels? That when they come and they find the grave clothes laying there, they're laying there undisturbed as though Jesus had risen through them. Not that He rose and took them off. Uh, did you ever notice, you go home this afternoon and read it, that uh, that we find the stone rolled away from the tomb. We're not told that Jesus rolled the stone away from the tomb. The angel rolled the stone away from the tomb. But read the accounts very carefully. I think that what you'll see is that the angel didn't roll the stone away so that Jesus could get out of the tomb. Jesus had exited the tomb. They rolled the stone away so that the disciples could see that the tomb was empty. When the apostles for fear are all locked up in the upper room and the door is locked, all of a sudden Jesus stands among them and says, peace be with you. It seems that Jesus is able to pass through solid objects. No wonder they, they thought that he was a spirit, a ghost. Did you ever stop to consider that the reason why Jesus was able to do that perhaps is because in the resurrection of his body, he is now more solid than anything in this world. That these, right here and now, we are living in the shadowlands. We are in the place of the shades. That here and now is what is impermanent, and unlasting, and it's not really quite solid. Now, I can't explain to you how this works in a way that would satisfy Plato or Aristotle or Newton. But I can tell you where I think the answer lies. It lies in the passage that I read at the start of the service this morning, Ephesians 2, and then again in Colossians 3. And we were told this, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ, and seated us with him, in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. The goal of this passage is still the resurrection, the coming ages. God will show his great kindness to us then. But I want you to know what Paul says he does not say that because of God's great mercy that's it, that it is as if God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. He said God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Let me ask you a question. Does it feel like that to you? you feel like you're sitting with Christ in the heavenly places? When you drive into work tomorrow, are you going to feel like you're seated with Christ in the heavenly places? This is something of which we are imperceptible. That we would not know, could not know, unless the scriptures told us it was so. Again, in Colossians chapter 3, In glory. The goal here, again, is resurrection. The appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when that happens, you will appear with him in glory. But then Paul says that, well, you have died. Now he's writing to living saints here. So he's not speaking of those who have physically died, but what he's speaking of is, uh, as he had said to the Philippians, that uh, he said, I've been crucified with Christ. I died. You died when you came to faith in Christ, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And and this isn't presented to us as a metaphor. It's not presented as an as if. There is a reality that takes place that happens through regeneration. Faith. It's a reality that's imperceptible to us now that seems to become perceptible at death. And that seems to have a tangibleness and physicality about it. I cannot explain that. I can only tell you what I see in the scriptures. And at the resurrection, that reality will be brought into conformity with this reality in the weakness of our bodies or if we have passed on in those bodies that are in the grave. Now you know at this point you might ask a question and the question might be this if if after our death we're, we're not disembodied ghosts floating around on clouds, if if there is this other reality and there is a solidity and a physicality uh, to all of that that exceeds the solidity and physicality that we have here, what's the point of the resurrection? What's the point of it? And the answer to that question lies in understanding God's unremitting jealousy. it makes me sad when scoffers read the attributes of God in the Scriptures through the lens of their uh, own sins or their own pettiness, and then present God uh, as in some way evil. It makes me more sad when Christians embrace those harsh interpretations And repeat them with a perverse delight that they scandalize people by them as though they're honoring God in some way by doing so. The truth is God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God declared, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And however else that attribute applies to whatever else we might apply, and I'll tell you how it applies here. You know, someone could look at the situation of the reality of people in Christ, and they could say to God, you know, you've you've won. You've you've conquered death. And, And even when we go to the cemeteries, and it appears that death has won, you make the reality otherwise even right Now, you take what is impossible and you make it a reality. So what does it matter if the dust stays in the earth? To which God answers, there's nothing and no one that I have redeemed. That I will not claim, I claim entirely. I am a jealous God. I love the beauty and the certainty and the comfort of the answer to the shorter catechism, number 37. It asks about the benefits of the souls of believers of death. And again, I. I say, friends, try to get out of your mind the Platonic notion of souls. The answer that it gives is this the souls of believers are at their death, made perfect in holiness, and do immediately pass into glory, and their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves to the resurrection. Do you understand that? That in being united to Christ, you are united in the whole of your person. So that your soul is united to Christ, you are united to Christ, and Christ will not abandon you in any aspect. The bodies of those who are hid lying in the ground, they are united to Christ, and He will not forget them because the body is the person as respects the outer man. Jesus didn't say, behold, my body was dead and I'm alive forevermore. But behold, I was dead and now I am alive forevermore. And you know that will be the testimony of everybody who puts their hope in Him. Will they die will be alive forevermore in body and in soul the hope for the future resurrection shouldn't rob us of the present hope for heaven right now for those who fall asleep in Jesus that hope I can't explain it but that hope is no ghostly hope it's no intangible hope but it's not the ultimate hope the final hope—that's the resurrection of the body. A friend of mine, a fellow by the name of uh, Mike Bauman. Mike and I used to work at a small college in New Jersey years ago. Mike went on to teach at Hillsdale College, and a few years ago, uh, Mike had a heart attack and then a stroke to which he succumbed. But Mike was reflecting on this, and he wrote these words. I want to read them to you. He wrote, and if we are blessed with a moment of insight, we will see our own destiny. We will learn what graveyards really are, not long lines of weathered headstones standing as silent testimonials to broken dreams or to separation without remedy, but rows and rows of planted seeds awaiting the harvest of the last day. We will understand that what is harvested far exceeds that which we laid in the ground. We will see that caterpillar and butterfly, acorn and oak, kernel and stalk, bulb and tulip and egg and rooster are merely two stages in the development of the same life we will see that the transformation wrought in the unseen darkness behind the veil of death is so magnificent that what we ourselves will become is hardly recognizable in what we now are. As Paul said to the Corinthians, that it's God who's destined us for these things. Why? Because the chief end of man, the chief end of human being, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. I said on the day that we started this series that I hope none of you are hoping in Heaven or longing for Heaven because God created us to hope in Him and to long for Him. If you are in you will find that your hope to enjoy Him will be fulfilled without end and without interruption. That to use the words of Proverbs 4.18, the path of the righteous is like the morning sun shining brighter at death, and brighter still at the resurrection till the full light of day. The great goal to which we are destined is summed up in Christ in the resurrection. But the hope of the future resurrection should not rob us of the present hope of heaven now for those who fall asleep in Jesus. Father, your grace to us is incredible. You do beyond all we could ask or imagine. And Father, given what you tell us in your word and what we perceive in ourselves, we, if we stop and think about it, we we, we know that we are we, our bodies, our inner cells, as well as our outer cells. What ought to be impossible, you make a reality for us now. And have an even greater end in view for us. Help us to reach our chief end that we would glorify you, and that our Father, we would enjoy you forever and ever. And if we die before Jesus returns, that we would do so without interruption. Confident that we will, by your word, your promises to us. Amen.